I was a kid, I laid awake at night and heard the sounds of trains. There's a lot of things I didn't understand. A lot of things I'd do different if I could. I don't want to be criticized. Nobody takes me serious here. Like you? Who in the hell says I gotta like let go of this? How can I let go of this? It's who I am. It's all I know. I wish they froze me in a block of ice till it was my time when I was ready to make my move. Before I started doing this acting stuff, I was afraid to get up in front of me. I didn't go to the moon. I went much further. Right now, what kind of theater does this country need? How about a theater with black and brown actors who had been convicted of serious crimes and had spent years in prison? Actors who want a chance in a society that has no time for them. Actors who ache for change. You know, that kind of a theater. For the last decade, Richard Holder has taught acting at Otisville State Prison and has formed a company of formerly incarcerated men studying the art of acting at HB Studio. Prison Monologues is a podcast that reveals the actor and his story. I didn't go to the moon. I went much further. I was born and raised in the Bronx in a two-parent household. We were lower middle class. They owned their own home. We always had food and shelter. I was born in 1957, went to grammar school during the Cold War, where we were instructed in atomic drills. I remember being sent home the day JFK was shot. My mom was first-generation Italian. My dad was Celtic. In the era they were married, both sides didn't approve of the Union, even though they were both Catholic. I don't remember any grandparents, for both sides were deceased before I was cognizant of what it meant. Gifted in school until high school, when I regularly cut to work at a grocery store. When I was 15, I drove a 30-foot truck, sans license, for a local mobster, who paid me more than my father made in a week. George Warwick. This is Prison Monologues, a podcast in which we talk to the formerly incarcerated who have taken up acting with master acting teacher Richard Holder at HB Studios in New York City. I'm Alan Winson, joined by my co-host Richard Holder, and we will be talking today with Richard's acting student, George Warwick. George, well, welcome so much to Prison Monologues, and Rich is here also. Rich, how are you doing? I'm good. I'm good. Yeah, I'm, uh, saw your performance yesterday. Oh, thank you. Thank yeah. you. It was nice to be back out on the boards, on the virtual boards. Oh, that's right, the virtual boards, right? right? Right, right. Yeah, I thought it was quite good. But we're not here oh, to talk thanks. about that. We're here to talk about George. How did uh, you and Rich meet, George? Well, I'm part of a poetry collective called Freeverse that I got into through the Department of Probation. I performed at Carnegie Hall through there. I've done a lot of writing. The facilitator, whatever his name is, Dave Johnson, teaches at the new school. He sent me the link, so I did it. I, I think when I answered Rick's email, I sent him to my my two state numbers so he could, you know, to verify that I kind of qualified because it was for ex-offenders and whatever. I don't really identify that as much as that as an ex-offender. I, I People ask me what I do. I'm a logistics guy. I'm a poet, author. 
playwright because I'm dabbling, trying to write a few plays. So, I mean, I've been on a few panels, the theater of war and they, and some guy, I mean, I don't own that ex offender as my view. And what's kept me sane is I think me and the state of New York are even, I paid the price for whatever I did. They don't owe me anything. I choose the path on which to go. You know, I think that's a heavy burden to carry as an ex offender. When I got out after doing time and I, I actually moved out of state, I never let that stop me from gaining employment or anything, you know, and you have to put it down on your resume and whatever. And I've always explained it. I mean, I was young, you know, I'm not, that's everybody grows, they change in life, you know, to, I think carrying that around hinders you personally, but that's my view. Some people, they use it and they get forward with it, you know. I, am I proud of what I've done in life? Not everything. You know, do I have regrets? Of course. You know, yeah. I regret watching my child grow up while I was in prison. I, it's like my biggest regret. Maybe we could so. talk a little bit about, about where, where you are today. You're um, you're in your 60s, I 63. guess. 63. Right, born in 57, so I'm, I'm a bit older than you. Had, you. had you acted earlier in your life? Is this something that you'd been interested in earlier? Well, my dad used to put on PTA plays, <laughs> big productions, South Pacific, West Side Story. Mm. And he always had us kids as part of it. He would be the producer, the actor. I mean, I lived in a, I guess it was upper middle class neighborhood growing up in the Bronx. A lot of Italian, Irish, a lot of civil service, a lot of mob guys. My school was number one in the Bronx. The grammar school I went to was like number one rated in the Bronx. What was it? PS 68 in the Bronx. I'm curious about your father producing these plays with the kids. So these were th things you no, did- with, on with the parents and the kids. He made me and my sister and my brother be part of it, whether we wanted to or not. There was no discussion. You're in it. That's it. Now, was he in the arts or did he just do this on the side? My father was a salesman most of his life. He could sell ice to Eskimos. Straight up. <laughs> You know, that he was just, I, they say I got his gift of gab. They say my grandson does, you know, it's part of the Irish in me, I guess. But where would he do these plays? Would, would, would it be in the high school? At the school, the PTA, uh, ah. in the public schools for the PTA to raise money, you know. I mean, back then there was really like no free lunches. Like today the kids get fed. There was none of that in yeah. the 60s. Yeah. You know. It was yeah. atomic drills. Hide under your desk because the Russians are going to I, I remember that. I grew up in Miami and right right near Cuba. And we would oh, yeah, yeah. dive under our desk. And you also mentioned uh, remembering when JFK was assassinated. Said that everybody was crying. I was maybe 63. I was five because I, I was born in November. We were in kindergarten. Teachers came in crying. And I only lived like a block and a half from school. So we used to walk home from school. I had an older sister, a couple of years older. So she, and everybody cried. My mother cried. Everybody was crying. Yeah. I mean, it stuck with me to this day. Yeah. You know? Your early life, you seem to have a sort of, of a normal life. I mean, father, mother, home life. Um, you did well in school. You know, you remember. When I was about 15, 14. Well, I always tried to work. There was a period in where my father suffered acute depression and he wouldn't work and financially the family suffered. And I would I was the oldest boy. I would go out and work and me and my friends would go out in the middle of the night, 10, 11 years old, and rob the Italian bread from the delis and 
there was a milk plant by us. We'd go steal a case of milk and then split it up. It was like a rough time, early 70s. I, I agree, I guess late 69, early 70s. Then I just, when I went, got put in a van to Childs High School, which is on Gun Hill Road in the Bronx, I just stopped going. I just went to work. By the time I was 14, I was my height now and probably 100 pounds less, about 180 strong. Some guy, you know, there was always a bunch of good fellows hanging around. Somebody got me a job driving a Coke truck at 15. You know, no license, nothing. Before we go further with your story here, maybe we can hear a little monologue uh, that you're you're, um, doing. The the play, it's from a play called Rocket to the Moon. And in this play, it's a dentist is the central character. And he has been in a loveless marriage for quite some time. And she's always on him like it's his fault, his fault. And there comes a time where he finally just says he's had enough of hearing her blaming him. And he turns it around on her. So this is when he finally speaks up and says something to her about. I could sympathize that with yeah. that. <laughs> I knew you could, George. All right. All right. Will you stop that stuff for a change? It's about time you begin to realize there are two ends to a rope. I have needs too. This one-way street has to end. I'm not going to stay underwater like an iceberg the rest of my life. You got me licked. I must admit it. All right, I'm sleeping. I don't love you enough. But what do you give? What do you know about my needs? That's it. That's the whole monologue you sent me. Nice job, George. So, so George, when you're doing that, who are you? Who, who do you become? Is it Do you become the character or a... The mix of the character and me, feeding off a past relationship, you know. Which is in my bio, yeah. We were just talking about um, your early life and having a hard time with your family when your father wasn't doing so well. He was clinically depressed, yeah. Yeah. And you were in the neighborhood where there was some criminal activity going on. That impacted your life. Not so much in the neighborhood. Everybody, a lot of guys were gamblers. They hung out at this local store. There was a few, what they call skippers today, guys that had respect. My neighborhood, nothing was done in the neighborhood. You didn't, the saying you don't defecate where you eat. That was a rule. You got caught doing something in my neighborhood, you got a beaten or worse. And this is the end of the 60s. Heroin was prevalent. I mean, I remember going to school and they finding junkies dead in the schoolyard in the morning. Mm. They knew how to make money. They were in the garbage business, the scrap iron business. They... They had their fingers in everything, you know. You know, if you wanted a job, I mean, I was young. I used to hang around. Here, go here. They'd run you on errands and give you, like, $5, you know. Sometimes I watch Goodfellas, and I think the guy, like, just wrote my story. I used to drive a guy around, and then I would drive him to Monticello Raceway from the Bronx every other night so he could go gamble money away. It's funny. Some of them... One guy, he was like the boss of the Bronx for numbers, and he would drive around with this rat-up old Chevy and have me drive him down into Harlem, and they'd bring out paper bags, and they would just throw them in the back seat. And you would look at a guy like that, and you wouldn't think that he was the guy, but he was the guy. You know, they, those were those old-timers. They, they knew how to keep a low profile. They weren't in the news. You know, it was all about the money, and they took care of the neighborhood. You know, somebody's 
died or whatever and the family was destitute they would take a collection you know my i guess they knew my grandfather which i didn't know he died when i was one so i used to deliver groceries to italian families on saturdays and the old men would tell me oh i knew your grandfather and they would give me a glass of grappa homemade wine i was like nine years old wow. at the end of the day i was like plastered you know, every house I went to, they oh, everybody made wine. And in my backyard, we had grapevines and figs that my grandfather had planted. And they would always come to my mother for the grapes at the end of the year to make wine. So when I would deliver, yeah, try some wine. Talking about a, a kid, I mean, 9, 10, 11, 12, you're, you're, you're quite young. And you seem to be leading two lives. I mean, one at home, which is kind of, I guess, a normal life, the way you described it. And one in which you were helping this guy collect money well i did it i did it because i got paid and i would go give my mother the money i'd keep some my mother got i know it's italian mothers i they they put this guilt on you your whole life i guess <laughs> jewish mothers do it too <laughs> okay so you know we were doing financially bad and so whatever I made, I would just bring home and give to her, not even tell my dad. She would just have the money for food. Well, I can remember my mother feeding the four kids and my father and not eating because there wasn't enough food. And I think about it today, you know, how, like, I take care of my daughter's 32 and I still take care of her and the grandkids. And I think it's like, you know, the sacrifices she makes it breaks my heart, you know. Yeah. But it kind of the two lives, I guess. You know, but she knew what know. you were doing. I mean, your mother was. Well, she would take the bread and stuff, and I told her the guy gave it. I'd never admit to us that I stole it or whatever because she wouldn't take it. Yeah, what about the money? I mean, you came home with money. She knew I was working. Well, to her, she didn't know I was. I was just driving a guy around. I didn't explain to her what we were doing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. In in those type of neighbors, you learn how to keep your mouth shut. Mm -hmm. Really. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, I was brought up in North Miami. It was a very middle class neighborhood. And I'm sure our lives were very different when we were growing up as kids in about the same period of time. I mean, you had a very different experience. I was pretty tough, too, though. I was kind of later on, as I got a little older, I was kind of feared in my neighborhood, you know. But, you know. Yeah. With I, I, you know, I don't know. I think I was exposed to marijuana by the time I was 12. You know, wow. and then wow. I was selling it, you know, you know, you do what you, you, you do things sometimes just to survive and you don't realize what you're doing, you know, yeah. not yeah. what I went to jail prison for because I, I was cognizant then, you know. Yeah. You, you know, you were talking earlier about how you felt like you were living the Goodfellas life depicted in the films. You eventually spent time in Rikers Island. Uh, later on, you, uh, you escaped from Rikers I tried Island. to escape. We got, we got out of the building, five of us. In fact, there's somebody in my acting class, Rich, that was there at the time, but I'm not going to say who. Uh, one guy got away. The rest of us got caught, and that added time to my sentence. You know. But at the time, I was facing life. I was like 22 years old, and I wasn't trying to hear that. You know. How much of this? I mean, we all watch the films. A lot of the films are made up of crime, people who are doing illegal things, getting caught, escaping. It all sounds so adventurous. Is the life that you led early on really that adventurous? Is it really, you know, a uh, uh, romantic the, the way it's shown in films? It was survival. I don't I don't look at it as romantic. 
the mid to late 70s, New York City was in a worse economic downturn as this. I'm coming to age 18, 19, 20, and there was no jobs. The firemen were getting laid off. The street. It was bad in the city, money-wise. And my mother had three other kids to feed, and I was the oldest boy. So, you know, they, I, it kind of fell on me. My dad was, I don't know. His path to adulthood was kind of rough, too, so... He, he was raised in an orphanage with his brother. His mother died giving birth to his brother. So, you know, as to this day, I can't remember the time he told me I love you. My mother kissed his hugs all the time. And I try to think back now, and I'm like, damn, I can't even remember the time Dad said he loved me. Yeah. You know, because he just maybe didn't know how. But it was kind of adventurous because the money was there and everybody got a piece of it, you know. It's funny, some of the guys I grew up today are in that life they're they're they have a ranking because who their father was their father i mean at 12 and 13 we really didn't even know that these guys were mobbed up they just money guys hanging around knock around guys they always treated kids great they always you know give us money for candy ice cream i mean it wasn't until later that i realized a lot of these guys were you know and a lot of them ended up in a hole in the ground, you know, it's that life, you know, it's a greedy life. I have friends today in that life, but I choose to live a citizen's life, I guess you could call it. Yeah, I'm just kind of worried sometimes when I see movies, you know, really well-made movies like, you know, The Godfather and all the good fellas, like you, you mentioned, and the effect that they're having on people. And I imagine that the life, um, that sort of life is not really romantic and exciting and i mean it's, it's another Not, there's a lot of double crossing today if you get made the fbi knows about it before you're even made you know made meaning they induct you into a family or bogata whatever they call it right. you know uh a lot of double crossing today you know the way it came about if you look at the history of it from sicilian calabria naples they a lot of them went to related they kept their mouth shut today i mean Sammy the Bull got a popular podcast now, like really, you know. Yeah. Uh, I, I think what says about that life is something that John Gotti said to Vincent Giganti, who was the head of the Genovese family at the time. And John told him that he inducted his son into the family and Vincent Giganti looked at him and said, man, sorry to hear that. Hmm. You know, we're, we they were in that life to make it better for their kids, not to bring them into it. You know what I mean? You you make the sacrifice for your progeny, for your children, so they can become doctors. I think Thomas Jefferson said it, you know, go to school to become a doctor so your kids could be lawyers and gov, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. there's a there's a quote by Jefferson about that, like, you know, sacrifice this so your kids don't have to, you know, kind of what I believe in, like, you know, I've always, even from prison, I always pushed my daughter away from drugs, stay in school, do better, don't live my, don't glamorize my life, you know. But she's been, she's seen Attica, she's seen other prisons, because she's come to see me, you know. I, I had visitation, so, you know. But I, I wanted better for her. Oh, you know, not maybe being a girl, it's easier. What was that like having your daughter? I imagine she was young at the time. She's now, you said, in her 30s, early 30s. 32, yeah. Right. 
of having her come and visit you at um, at Attica. Oh, yeah. We had a trailer visit once in Attica. I think she came once to Attica to see me in a trailer visit. And I'm once an eight, 10-hour ride from Columbus Circle. That's where the buses pick you up. Yeah. It's great, and it's not. I remember her saying, I, I don't know if you've ever seen Attica. Have you ever been there? Attica has these big turret gun, 40-foot wall with with these turrets. And I remember her saying that it looked like Disneyland. And I told her, oh, yeah, this is this is a real amusement park here. <laughs> I told her, you know, <laughs> we, we, laugh. we laugh about it now. You know, but she was young. The second time she came to see me in Sullivan on a trailer and she was mad because I allowed I, I that, it was like the last visit I was going to see for five years till I got out because I, I allowed her mother to take her to Florida yeah. move you know I had she had to get my permission because I had court-ordered visitation and I let her go because she was living in a bad area and standing down with her mother and her mother's new husband and I thought it would be a better opportunity not not to, she lives out north of Tampa in a little town called Brooksville. That to go to school where they want metal detectors and gangs and all that. Oh, she hated me for 10 years for that. I always felt as a parent, you do what's best for your children, regardless of how it affects you. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And you and you guys are good now. Yeah, I'm a grandpa. Come on. I got two little grandsons. I know. It's great. Great. Being, grand, being grandfather is great. Being a dad. Your life has been has a lot of ups and downs in it. You you were you were in prison, uh, you were released, and then you went back in uh, when your dad uh, five years. Yeah, I was at five years on the street. Yeah, I went to John Joe John Jay for most of that for that for for that period of time. But then you you um you impersonated a policeman, sure, and uh, and robbed a a drug dealer. I robbed drug dealers, drug, well, more than once. I mean, More that takes an amazing amount of guts. I mean, you must be a very brave person, if anything else. Well, it's easy to be brave with a gun in your hand, honestly. You know, uh, sometimes I just had handcuffs and they would, and a, and a shield, and they would assume that I was a police. I always, I went in a tailspin after my dad died in 89. And. I had had a motorcycle accident, so I was on painkillers. The doctor cut me off painkillers. I started using heroin. It's basically the same thing to kill pain. But when my father died, I couldn't deal with it emotionally. Actually, it took me probably about five years to deal with it emotionally. And I, I got caught up in the drugs. And if you have know anything about heroin, you got to have it every day. And it takes money. So I always thought, why go rob an old lady for his purse? Or a bank, and then go give it to a drug dealer. Just go rob the drug dealers. You get everything you want. Wow! I do two crimes when you can only do one. Wow! You understand? It, it, that's my, that was my rationale, and I ran all up in Washington Heights, Harlem, Low East Side. You know, and yeah, it's dangerous. Yeah, you know, I we were in a car chase in a shootout that went from the Bronx, Jerome Avenue, 170th in the Bronx to Dykeman, and then I crashed on Riverside Drive opposite Columbia Presbyterian, and my co-defendants got away and were never caught or told on. What's funny now, at my age, some of the kids I grew up with are uh, considered bosses in that thing. You know what I mean? So I, sometimes I see them at, if I see somebody died from the neighborhood, I'll go to the funeral. I, 
Like one of my friends' mother died. He was shocked that I showed up because maybe it was like 30 years so I seen him. And he's a skipper. And they were like, wow. You know, but his mother was nice to me when we were kids. And it's about respect. You know, you're not into that anymore. I mean, you have a you have a different kind of life. But when you go back to the neighborhood, do they respect you for choosing oh, yeah. another well, life? I'm, I'm in, well, where I live now, there's different group from my friends, but I'm kind of, I'm accepted. Like I'm, I'm invited to parties, uh, weddings. Uh, I went to my other friend's mother died the other, like last weekend I went to, I made sure I got back from North Carolina in time for the wake, you know, cause it's, we were taught it's respect, you know what I mean? And so I, I'm, it's something you learn in prison. If two guys are having a conversation and it doesn't involve you, you walk away. You don't stand around listening. And that's how I live my life. So I'm around these guys. And unless, you know, we're all talking sports or whatever, cool. But if it gets into a serious conversation, uh, you know, if I'm not needed to stay for some reason, I walk away. I, I don't want to know. I don't want to hear. I, I don't want no clue about it because if something ever goes the wrong way, at least then they start looking around who knew. And that's how guys get shot in the head. Okay. So by not participating or giving an opinion or even knowing what's going on, on the opposite side of the legal spectrum, I stay out of it. Not that they, I mean, I've, I've get offered things all the time that I just turned down. I drive a truck for a living. I have a CDL. I'll be going to North Carolina in about two hours. What kinds of things do you, uh, do you transport? I transport food essential. Right. I drive a reefer truck. I bring food down, food. I bought like 40,000 pounds of chicken legs up the other day to Hunts Point, sweet potatoes. When the watermelons are in season, I got a hook with the guy that does all the biggest watermelon company in the eastern United States. The guy that provides the loads happens to be a friend. Ex-con, too. Yeah. Good yeah. for about 800 grand a year he makes. Yeah. So, you know, what? I'm pretty reliable. I get the the load there and back with least problems. Actually, I like being out in the road in the middle of the night, smoke a cigar, got the music pumping, doing 75, you know, pulling 80,000 pounds. Yeah. yeah, you know. I'm hearing all this stuff, all this stuff that you're talking about. And, and the thing that just keeps running through my mind is when did you start writing poetry? Oh, I was writing poetry in 91 when I got locked up for my last sentence, the 17 year sentence. Mm -hmm. As I put in the bio, my wife decided not to stay, my daughter's mother. So a lot of it was anger written. I was actually featured in Vibe magazine in 94. They came to Attica and interviewed me about my poetry. And then I kind of let it go by the wayside because I really had no financial support in jail. I mean, I'd support my mother. I wouldn't take any money from her. I tell them, no, I'm all right. So yeah. I had to work. I worked in the factory making probably the desks you got in John Jay from Corecraft, lockers and stuff. I just put all the emotions aside and just got into surviving the bid. You know what I mean? I, I was in probation one day in the Bronx and a guy approached me, does a poet, he did a poetry collective for probation called Free Verse. And he, we were talking, he goes, oh, you're Italian? I said, well, I identify as Italian, but I'm mixed. And he's like, come next week. We got these people, poets coming from Italy. There's a free lunch and all that. 
So I went. Do you write often? I mean, do you write poetry often or was it just in the workshop or is it something that you do? No, I write. I have, I, I was writing. I have probably 80 stories from jail and everything else. Like, you bring a poem. You brought so, a poem with you today, right? Yeah, I did bring a poem. Yeah. It's called Why. Why do I write expressing things I cannot verbalize? The anonymity of the written word shields this author from criticism. My soul soars with abandon as I express my fears and desires hidden deep inside on paper and ink. Why do I write? Because I can. That's terrific. That's terrific. Thank you. Thank you for sharing. And you've got other poetry that you've done. I've uh, got I've got a flash drive because it, it eats up all my space on a on a on a map. I'll have to send you that story. It, it's a story about me hanging out on Arthur Avenue in the Did 70s. you send it by email? I'll I'll, I'll send it by email, yeah. Okay, or I'll check. I'll it sounds like it. material for uh, acting out, so. Yeah, yeah, well, we're working on our new show. Well, you might. It's a couple of pages. We used to do these, they call the TV scams. They don't do them no more. The guys knew how to get people on the hook. And how how long you in Manhattan, Rich? How long how, am I in? Remember Gimbel's? Yeah. 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 86 in Lexington? Yes, yes. So we used to meet the Mark. At the corner of 87th and Lexington, there's a payphone. The guy would pull up. He thought he was he talking to a guy named Tony and Gimbals that had like 50 Trinitron TVs, you know, Sony, which was the shit back in like the late 70s, early, mid 70s. And he had them. He had to get rid of them. He was selling them for cash if you wanted a deal. So the guy would pull up with a truck. I'd meet him and tell him, I, first thing I'd do, I'd tell him, Move over. I'm driving. You're not allowed on the dock. Give me the envelope. Never mention money. And if he if he hesitated, I'd put him on the payphone, dial a number, and the guy would answer. Gimbal's Tony. You know. Meanwhile, the guy was in the Bronx somewhere. So the, he'd get back in the truck, get in the envelope, and I'd tell him, "See the coffee shop. Do me a favor. I give him two dollars. Go get me a regular coffee. Get yourself something." He'd get out the truck and I would just drive away two blocks later. My partner would be waiting. I'd get in the take the envelope, which would have like anywhere from five thousand to twenty thousand or whatever. This is in the seventies. And we would just drive away. If if the if they had beat before and they called the cops, it was a misdemeanor. Okay. I I got a lot of those misdemeanors, but I made a lot of money. I used to probably pull in about two grand a week. We used to get a third of the Third of the action. Third went to lawyers and bail. A third went to the team that found the mark. And a third went to me and my partner, Victor, who was Cuban. You know, he's gone. And oh. you, it was you... really, a, it, it was acting. I used to wear shirts at Gimbel's Jimmy or Corvette's Jimmy or Alexander's Jimmy. You know, just walk up to them. They didn't know me from a hole in the wall. But you had to believe who you are, you know. You had to live the role, I guess. You know, I think about it now and I laugh. So my, my so my question to Rich is, is is that acting? When when George was the um played the policeman and was robbing the drug, is no, this that, is this a form of acting? Well I see a scance know, on your face. What you see what? A scance. It's like, you know, uh, well it's well the thing is is that well it, 
you know, you know what I'm all, and George has learned this from coming to my class that like, I don't want any acting in my class. You know what I mean? I don't want anybody impersonating police officers Just in my class. The, I want the them being police officers. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I, I believe me. I, I was stopped <laughs> by real cops and let go because they right. thought I was on the job. I know right. all the lingo. My brother, and you know, the funny thing is my brother's a correction officer in New York City for like 18 years. And so is his son. I have nothing against cops. Like a lot of people are against cops. I mean, without cops, there'd be anarchy out here. You know, I just think they should do their job in a more professional manner. Don't set people up. Don't kneel on people's necks, you know, stuff like that. Very simple. You know, be professional. I was professional as a robber. I mean, I didn't rob from old people or, you know, I wouldn't even take the drugs gold or nothing if they were wearing gold. I would just take the product and the money, you know, because how would you feel if I robbed your gold chain and your grandmother gave it to you? Right. You would hate no. me forever. Product, money, I mean, they get it replaced. How do you so, feel? How do you feel about that life that you led now that you're not leading it anymore? What, what did you, do you have a different perspective on it? Do you still, do you respect those who are doing it and getting away with no, it? I haven't used any opiates since 1991. And believe me, drugs are prevalent in jail. A lot of my friends are into moving that in jail, you know, because I know people support their families off that in jail, send their kids to private schools. <laughs> Looking back, if I could do it again, I'd probably change it, but I can't change it. Uh, I just glad I didn't hurt anybody unnecessarily doing that. You know what I mean? Yeah. Because uh, it could go sour right away, like how I got arrested. You know, I didn't shoot anybody. They, you know, the partner I was with, he, he unfortunately wasn't as professional. You know, there are rules to everything you do. I mean, in jail, we have rules, not just from the people I associate with. We had rules, not just administrative and the rules. We had our own rules to live by. If you intended to associate with our thing, you had to, have, you had to follow the rules. Yeah. You know, yeah. so there are rules to everything I feel in life. You know, some are good and some are bad. You know, your choice on how you deal with it. Do you think you're going to go anywhere with the acting? Is that going to be something that you want to continue to do? Or is it just something for fun? Hmm. I thought it might go somewhere. I was thinking about trying to take maybe the story I wrote, I sent to Richard and try to adapt it into a screenplay. I don't know. John Lezugano did pretty good with it. Right. Well, I mean, well, right now you're getting you're getting some training. You're getting your feet wet. Yeah. You know, you're learning yeah. all that stuff so that you know this will be your first step out. Our next show that we're doing, kid stuff in July, it'll be your first kind of step out there on the virtual stage, and then see where we, where you go from there. Go I on. think Rich is very good when he tells you don't act, live the role, like live the role. And I never looked at it like that, but I I look at it now. Right. No, and you're, you read and it, you're no. doing that in class. You're doing a great job. The show is called Kid Stuff. And it's it's where each one of the each member of the company is going to tell a story from their childhood. And that's going to be interwoven with other stories and other thoughts and different things. And it's going to just really be a show that shows how powerful childhood is and how it shapes us as adults and how it continues to resonate in our lives. You know what I mean? Yeah. The, like we talk about the beautiful things, the tragic things and everything in between. 
Yeah. Looking forward to that kids stuff uh, coming out of the Acting Out uh, workshop. Uh, George Warwick, thank you so much. I know you've got a big drive ahead of you. Thank you for having me, Rich. If yeah, you sure. Nice to meet you. Thank you. Nice to meet you, George. Have a good day, everyone. All right, and be safe. After our guest, George Warwick, left, Richard and I stayed for a few minutes and talked about acting. Did you feel uncomfortable with that question about uh, the acting that he did as a, as a, in crime? Well, I, I just didn't know how to answer it because it falls into such a weird kind of thing because like, I certainly don't ever want people s thinking that I'm running an acting school that's making better criminals. Do you know what I mean? Like, like making people more able to commit their crime. Yeah. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like, like I, I, not that I, I would think that, but, but there are people who, there are people who have made comments like that. Oh, great. You're, you're teaching acting to, you know, they don't need training. They're already good at, I mean, I get, you know, snarky comments like that from sometimes. So, and I didn't take it that way from you, but I'm just saying I, I was, I, I didn't know how to answer it because I didn't want to like answer it wrong. Do you know what I mean? Well, how you know, would you, I mean, if we were to include it in the program, how would you answer that? You know, what I wanted to say was that the, he was probably, he was probably always a very good actor because when he, he wasn't impersonating a cop, he was being a cop. And that's the difference. If you were impersonating a cop, you'd be able to see that a, a, a mile away, but he was clearly a very good actor. Do you know what I mean? Because yeah. he was able to just believe that he was who he was. And, and but but like that could be misconstrued to like oh you're gonna you're gonna like you're you're gonna try to refine that and make these crooks even bigger crooks or something. No, I, I hear don't, I, no, I, I hear that, and I think that's uh, in a, I think we've kind of tripped over something that's kind of a key part of this program, prison monologues. And I just would like, do you have a moment? Can we explore it just a little more? Um, yeah. All right. The, 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 I, I I hear the problem. I hear the issue. That that that's presented here, a um, you know, a, so someone who's a criminal thinks like a criminal, does 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 it quite well. Seems to have a moral kind of stance to the degrees in which he's going, but he pretends to be other people and does it quite well, and then he gets out of prison and takes an acting class, and and certainly his ability to do what he did in his criminal life is going to be carried over somewhat into the acting class that that imaginative becoming of the other is now going to be coming over into your legitimate acting class. Is there something the acting class can offer to a George or an Omar or to anyone that you have that, that is um, going to get them to see their behavior differently, get them to improve their life, which I think is kind of what you want to do. You just don't want to teach them acting. You want to teach them kind of life skills too in a way well i mean that's not my job to teach them life skills my job is to, to to teach them to be good actors and if they if they get life skills from that that's great that's gravy but that's that cannot ever be my intention that's not i'm not trained to do that i'm trained to teach actors you know and i i, I hear you but there is a positive outcome that you've seen oh yeah from sure. these men some young some old in taking the class, though it's not your goal. Uh, what what have you seen? Um, have there been changes in in these men in in being able to engage in acting and performing with these yeah. wonderful words? Well, because, well, because see, it, it's a double thing because because the, the the way I train them, the way I was trained, and and I think I've taken even further, 
is that it really is about the person. It's really about the individual. It's about, it's about owning who they are, being who they are. And many, many acting schools are all about being a character and doing the histories and all this kind of stuff. And, and so just in focusing on that, saying, I want you, not your ideas. It's like that alone is empowering. Like somebody wants me, especially people who have like been discarded and abused and, and, tortured and all sorts of things were, you know, in their childhood, in prison, whatever is for somebody to say, you're valuable. I want you, I want you to show me who you are. Sometimes for the first times in their lives, they're showing people who they really are. Yes, that is extremely valuable. That is life changing. That is life saving. You know what I mean? But, but I do it because we've got a show coming up and that's what I need for the show. I don't say, and this is going to change your life. You know what I mean? Because then it's suddenly, then they become self-conscious and that is diminished. So what I'm hearing is we have a, uh, a George who pretends to be a gimbal employee in order to get money from, from someone. That's not who he is. No. He, he does it quite well. Right. But in, in, in every moment of that performance, I'm using air quotes, it's a lie. Well, yeah, but it's not a performance, you know, in the set. I mean, that's the thing that I guess where I got, I got kind of confused because it's not a performance. It's a deception. That's different. A performance is for an audience. It's, it, we, we agree. We and the audience agree where this is not real. We're making this up. You're there. I'm here. Shake hands. Go. That is not what he did was not a performance. That's what I'm trying to get to. Right. That's what I, I think that that's the. The, the, the answer I was looking for. It's a difference between what, what he was doing in an illegal, untruthful, um, lying way, as opposed to true art, which is truth. It is, it's human, it's connected. Right, but, but it's also, like I said, it's also an agreement. We're going to suspend, we're, we're going to, we know that this stage is a stage. We know that these people are not these characters. We know that the set is fake. We know that the lights are artificial, but we're going to agree to believe it. And in there is where the art happens. Thank you, Richard Holler. Thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs> that, was, that, that was good. You, you may have known that all along, but uh, these little truths kind of like pop up and I just wanted to take a moment to uh, investigate it. So that, that has become right. a part of this program now. So thank all you. Right. Cool. That was all great. Right.